0: Hey, it's Cody and Matt, and thanks for joining us for another episode of The The Coma Coma Cast. Cast. Matt, we're going to be diving into all things involving the LGBT community, including our own lives. And don't forget our cats. We don't want to forget them. The Coma Cast starts now. Podcasting from the Lone Star State in Southern California, you're listening to The Coma Podcast with Cody and Matt. Hey everybody and welcome to the Comacast. It is April 27th, 2021. Uh, we thank you for joining us for another episode. This is Crime Week. Again, every last week of the month is our Crime Week where we kind of go back in time to how our podcast was in its initial year, Matt, uh, where we had crime cases, cold cases. And so right. everyone has a chance this last week to join us. We know we've been a little hit and miss there on that since we restarted right. this format this year. But
1: much like 2020, 2021 continued its stride and just kind of slapped down each of us in turn um, between uh, life in general and uh, world events. <laughs> but um, before we get to that, though, uh, one thing I wanted to tell you, Cody, was that, you know, I'm a huge fan of my baristas. At, we go to the Starbucks at our Target because mm-hmm. we live in a more rural area. And they're super nice. And one of the baristas happened to hear us talking about, we were talking about podcasts and she followed it. So I don't know if she's listening to this Ooh. episode or how far along she is, but thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Cause she like handed me her phone. And he's like, he, she's like here, search it for yourself and add it. And I was like,
0: that's always exciting.
1: Thank you. I mean, I appreciate it. I think that we can support each other. Uh, like we were ta- we you and I were talking about off camera the other night about, you know, working, wanting the opportunity to work with other podcasts and other other people in the community that do podcasts to support them because they can support us too. And it can be, we can all help each other and add to the different things happening, you know, and the different opinions and different thoughts happening. And we can do that easily. It costs nothing to work with each other and be respectful of each other's mm-hmm. space too. But I, I just thought you'd find that really interesting, you know, while yeah. we're...
0: Um, that, hopefully she is uh, listening. That'd be a lot of fun. And yeah, we, of course, you know, that's something as y'all continue listening and continue watching us, you're going to see uh, our crime week and our podcasts and our live shows. We have so many things and so many opportunities for y'all to listen, but you're going to see them continue to evolve, get better. And again, hopefully you'll be able to, we'll be able to introduce you to other people, um, and see some of the great things they're doing in their communities or some of these podcasts that they may have. Um, I think there's a whole big door that we're just ready to open up and introduce to everybody. And I'm, it's really exciting. Um, so yeah, I, I love when people want to listen to the podcast and they're like, Hey, what is it? I want to hear it. So I'm like,
1: it makes me so nervous when, uh, you know, when we had interviewed Clint last week, even though you guys will hear that probably tomorrow, um, it was fascinating because it's just not something I talk to him about these things, but I don't know. Like, I, I really, I talk about it, but I don't really, like, try to force it down people's throat. So I'm just like, hey, yeah. you know, just do this thing. And he's like, well, and then he told me he listens to it. I'm like, oh, my God. Growing up where people actively chose to they they chose the words in the english language to tell me they didn't like the sound of my voice or hearing me talk <laughs> <And then laughs> we put together a whole platform where that's kind of like what we do and then people come and hit play i'm like weird <laughs> but um but cody do you know what we're do you know what or who we're talking about today we talked about it a little bit we tossed around a few ideas do you know what i settled on
0: what did you settle on matt
1: so I settled on there is one case we did, as you know, anybody if you've listened to past few crime weeks, there were a couple episodes I wanted to re-record because the audio was not so great in the first few episodes while Cody and I were essentially finding ourselves translation that I needed a better microphone because we were still testing and what worked and didn't work. Um so we now have a few episodes picked out that we're gonna do. And the one I want to re-record today is Julie Doe. Um as a fairly traumatic case. It's from the eighties. But we had considered even doing this one live because there are lots of questions surrounding it.
0: Yeah, Matt, that was a exciting episode. I remember um us doing that. And I think at the time I was telling you that I found the whole DNA aspect of crime cases is so interesting, especially, and we're going to talk about this later on as we get into that particular right. case and afterwards, but the DNA is so amazing and how much it's advanced over time. And uh, in this case, the the DNA Doe uh, project and everything that's involved is is an amazing group, and you, we'll hear more about that in this case. But yeah, I, this one was a very interesting, uh, insightful case. Um, As insightful, I guess, any of these crime cases can be because at the heart of them, they're still really sad stories. They they are sad and they
1: are unsolved. And, you know, in a case like Julie Doe's, it means that she hasn't been identified. And what we also never know in these, there's sometimes where there has been. There could be people that are aware of it and don't want to identify their family member because they've been disowned, They, whatever background, you know, we don't know. Um, just like there's sometimes people that come from other countries, to, they'll move to another country to live their own truth and life. If something happens to them there and there's nobody to claim them, they might have left their family themselves and not told anyone where they were going. So their family has no idea and might think, oh, they're just living in some quaint little town hiding away from everybody and have no reason to think that their loved one is deceased and authorities are looking for somebody to answer questions about them. Especially when you talk about, um, people who are transgender and they may not be living under their birth name. Um, for those that don't know, when you refer to somebody who has transitioned and you refer to them by what was initially on their birth certificate, um, it's called dead naming. So it's, we avoid that unless we absolutely have to provide the information here. Like, because it's generally used in a derogatory way. Um, yeah,
0: it, you know, it's one it, of those uh, things that we, in in last year's season, when we talked about this, in each of these cases, usually at some point, we talked about the media influence on on these cases. And early on, right. there was those cases where they would miss uh, gender yeah, and use the wrong pronouns over and over and they'd get called out and then they would still continue doing And some of these were actually LGBTQ, um, platforms and websites that were doing this. What
1: does happen is sometimes people don't know right up front, you know, they only have what's reported, but once it's been updated or, you know, you know, in the case of Julie Doe, when we talk about her later, you'll, you'll hear about how that happened. But, you know, and like you said, in many of our cases, their name was known it was not Im- who they were before they became who they wanted to be isn't necessary to solving the crime. If they were murdered because they were trans, calling them by the wrong name does nothing but do more insult. They were already attacked and murdered and lost their life just for solely for being who they were. Adding insults to the injuries by using the wrong names and pronouns. And you'll see many times that families do that too because they can't understand their loved one. Yeah. Unfortunately. And they they think that they're sometimes they think they're doing them a service. Sometimes they refuse to acknowledge who, what they wanted to be. And you know, that that can be a, a more difficult part, you know, of doing research because. Obviously, somebody was disrespectful to this person because they're dead and they were murdered uh, or died under suspicious circumstances. But what you don't always expect is sometimes when you're looking for like a family interview, because we only deal generally with public information, public statements. We try not to speculate too much on what people may or may not be thinking and feeling. But when you come across something that's just super disrespectful, written by like a family member, Or someone that you would have expected to be supportive. You're like, oh, oh, my God. And you're sitting there going, do I want to? You don't want to give that kind of attention to to it on the podcast. So we typically more leave it as they were not supported by their family. I don't think much more would generally need to be said. We don't need to say which relative said exactly what, because that person is probably before they died. had probably heard all those things. We don't need to pile it onto their memory, you know. Um, so in the effort of Julie Doe, when you have DNA involved and when we talk, I'll talk more about the case in a little bit, you'll understand why this case is just a little different where this is a case where maybe knowing who she was born as might shed a little bit of light. And this is different because she's an unsolved unknown case. We know nothing about her. Other than the very basics. And it seems almost impossible that we wouldn't know something about her. Um, but here we yeah. are. And so, this is makes you think that to me, it, it's kind of always made me think that maybe somebody doesn't either, her family has no idea that she moved away or, you know, that she walked away from them or they disowned her. Yeah. Or they suspect something happened, but have never looked for her because that happens too. They don't know for sure that their family member is deceased. But they never looked either. They just wrote them off and walked away.
0: Coming up, we are going to be talking more about uh, Julie Doe uh, and also about uh, what I think is really interesting and kind of he's going to talk about that. But the DNA project that has created some of these renderings for what uh, Julie could look like. Um, and all of that is coming up next.
1: So Julie Doe is the nickname given to a transgender woman who was believed, she's believed to have been murdered in Claremont, Florida. She has never been identified. Uh, Nobody has ever come forward publicly and claimed her as a family member. And until 2015, it it was not believed that she was even trans. Uh, They thought she was a cisgender woman, meaning, cisgender meaning that Born and identified and lived as male or female or whatever, whatever they lived as matched their birth certificate for sloppiest terms to put out there. So it's estimated she was born between 1952 and 1966 in Southern Florida. And it's estimated she died between January and September of 1988. And she was between the ages of 22 and 35. Um, her remains were not recognizable. And so her cause of death was suspected to be a homicide because of how she was found, which we'll go into in a little bit. Her cause of death is still undetermined as she was discovered on September 25th, 1988 at Claremont, Lake County, Florida. Um, her nationality was believed to have been American. And there are a couple of composite sketches of her that have been developed. She was approximately 5'10". And when she was found, she was she was mummified. And like I said, she was believed to have been between 22 and 35 and she was located at a roadside by a trucker looking for, um, I mean, he was looking for lumber and so he was off the road and the body had been dragged to a concealed area of County road 474. And so where that area is, it's where Lake and Polk County, Florida meet. So it's not too far from the border of those counties. If you're looking at a map, um, what was found with her, she was clothed. She wore a bluish green tank top and an acid wash denim skirt. Um, she had been wearing pantyhose. They were partially removed. So it is suspected that a sexual assault may have taken place. She was not wearing shoes, um, any jewelry. There were no personal effects found like a purse or things like that, that, you know, um, a woman would typically be carrying like a wallet or anything like that. All of that was not there. Um, there were no other forms of identification. So is why investigators suspected she had been murdered because she was found in, like I said, a tank top skirt, partially pulled down pantyhose in a concealed area with no forms of identification or jewelry, shoes, you know, things that maybe a friend or a relative would have been easily able to help identify. Um, And it's kind of a wide range of when they believe she died. They believe she had been dead anywhere from two weeks to eight months before the discovery, because she wasn't in a recognizable condition. So unfortunately it leaves a lot open to interpretation. Now, um, when she, like I said, from, so she was found in 1988. So from 1988 to 2015, nobody had a clue that she was transgender. And, um, while in, daily life that does not matter but in sense of solving a crime where nobody's been identified no family members have been identified some additional information might be helpful because they could be looking for the wrong person um they were autopsied in she was autopsied in gainesville florida and even then they had no cause apparent cause of death so she had long bleached strawberry blonde hair She had manicured fingernails. They were long and well taken care of. They believe they might have been artificial. Um, They were identified as she had several prior broken bones, um, including healed fractures on her toes, her cheekbone, a rib, and possibly her nose. So they estimate she was between 5'9 and 5'11, and she in life weighed between 150 and 180 pounds. Um, There was evidence that she had had cosmetic surgeries. She had uh, um, breast implants and they were a, well they were noted as proportional to the victim's body and they believed a, a sex sex reassignment surgery occurred around 1984 based upon um, now this was based upon a specific note that the implants she had the type that were used they were discontinued in 1983. They also believe she'd had a rhinoplasty, which is a nose job and they also think, she might have it might have been related related to the injury she sustained to her nose. Um, and it was initially thought she had been given uh had given birth at least once based on pelvic changes, but that they believed that actually might be attributed to the hormonal changes of uh, reassignment surgery and transitioning. Um now the around her nose, they're not sure because also she had sustained healed injury, so it's possible. she had been assaulted and broken her nose and had it repaired or she had a nose job along with cosmetic surgeries in her process of transitioning so like i said she had initially been believed to be cisgendered until 2015 however when they ran her dna they learned that she had x y chromosomes so The most basics, basics of biology is most people would know that uh, cisgender females are generally XX and males are XY. So, of course, they only learn that when they actually process her DNA. And of course, that's when they learned that um, she had been on hormone replacements, which caused the pelvic changes. So realizing that they were incorrect, that there was not a history of pregnancy, it was simply pelvic changes from the hormones that she was taking. Um, there were fingerprints available from her and initial sketches were created and we'll add some some of the composite sketches that are available. Um, and so she has been assigned as a Julie Doe and she has had her uh, DNA processed, I believe twice at this point, And nothing, nobody has come forward and there were the, the running theories at the time were that the um julie doe had because of the challenges of being a trans woman in the 80s had either left her family or her family had disowned her and because no missing reports matched her at all that had been filed in the area so it's possible she's not from that city um, they estimate she's from South Florida, but South Florida is not necessarily a tiny area. She could be from anywhere. She could be from, you know it's one of those things she could have been an only child and her parents passed away. So there's nobody to look for her. You know it's it's really hard to know without somebody coming forward or some kind of identification being made. So the next thing that happened was the DNA doe project. The DNA doe project specializes in identifying people through their DNA for people who have not been identified um, in order to properly identify a person who is deceased or been murdered or is an otherwise unidentified body. Um, So investigators worked with them and they made two different attempts to extract DNA from from uh, her remains. Unfortunately, they were not able to extract enough DNA. From the first two attempts to be successful. They attempted a third time in 2018, and that also failed. However, in January of 2020, shortly before we filmed, I mean, it was like the week we filmed this initially. um, It was in process. It has been successfully obtained, but um, now they're still doing genealogical research. So what happens is once they've identified her, what they do is they process this, try to match it to somebody. So she might match to like, say, for example, a fourth cousin, for example. So if say they found a match to a distant relative, they have to build up the entire family tree in order to locate this one person. And they don't know who they're looking for. So they have would have to obtain samples from these other relatives as they get closer up the tree to find a closer match, to get closer and closer until they pinpoint where she is on her family tree. So um, the DNA Doe Project volunteers are Lee and Anthony Redgrave, and they founded the Trans Doe Task Force. And they they advocate for um, identified victims that are noted as transgender or gender nonconforming, because this fills in the gap. This is advocating for people who do not necessarily live as you know, whatever they might have been assigned at birth. Like in the case of Julie Doe, she was assigned male at birth, but that's not how she lived. And that's not what was going on in her life. But it was only known um, when her DNA was determined to have XY chromosomes in it. And realizing that people have been looking in the wrong direction this entire time. So it it's hard when you're doing genealogical research because you're not looking for julie doe in it you might be looking for more like a michael doe but you don't know that and you don't know who's going to come forward anyway so there are a lot of challenges to this but um at some point hopefully we will get an answer um once the dna project is released and they are they can talk about it and share what they found because they would have to notify the relatives and if they do agree to be identified you know publicly it's going to depend on the family's wishes if there are any, and it's really important to be respectful because we also, you don't want to dead name somebody. There's a reason this person transitioned, and it's important to respect them. You know, they weren't respected in life and it's important to respect them as much as possible in death. So Cody, now that I've gotten to provide you an update because I don't think you knew about the last part as well. Um, you know, you and I've talked about DNA has been a very interesting part of our podcast, almost from the beginning, because the year before we started the podcast is when I just took a 23andMe test for myself to pick up my family's family tree project and learned all those things about myself. Um, so here we are in this. And like I said, when you and I initially filmed this, th- this was like literally the week that they were had announced that they were working on a fourth attempt To identify Julie Doe, which I think is just incredible that they have kept attempting every few years to try to do something to help her and give her the respect and dignity of identifying her and laying her to rest. Yeah, I
0: think when you look at this, uh, if you look at the project itself and kind of the idea behind it initially, it, it really was to, cause no one was doing this, you know, and as we've talked about, sometimes the police forces, um, if, unless it's a huge city and even then, then there's too many cases, but the, the police stations and police organizations in whatever city can't afford to continue looking at all these cold cases because, you know... I know we put a lot of money at at police, but then once it's there, it's not allocated into the areas it may need to be. But um, this organization was created. And uh, one of the things that if you look at their website is that they really want to be persistent in trying to find uh, and resolve these cases and so I think in this in this instance with Julie uh, you're being able to see that they are continuing that persistence and even though they may not get anywhere after a few tries they're going to keep trying to find something because their ultimate goal is right. to solve because
1: every time there's a technology breakthrough there's another opportunity to retry every single one that failed before you know Because in 1988, yeah, we had fingerprints, but as far as I know, no DNA was taken off. Now, again, there could be things about the case that were not publicly identified in order to prevent somebody from trying to claim a crime or claim credit for something they didn't do and mislead investigators. Um, We don't know if there were any biases in the investigation. Sometimes the worst part about it is the investigating authorities that they just think... (laughs) okay, another LGBT member and, you know, another homo. And they just, that they just blanket dra- name us and sweep it off the table and we're ignored. And hence this podcast. But then of course you get people who realize that this is a person who deserve dignity and they care and they do the best they can. So, you know, we don't know the circumstances behind it, but there was, it was never announced as far as I know that any DNA was taken off of her clothes yeah. from somebody that wasn't her. Um,
0: Well, and, you know, we look at some of these older cases and we've discovered that at the time, uh, because the technology and maybe the education of police force or uh, even the investigators involved in these cases may not have... obtain the evidence necessary at the time it may get the evidence may get spoiled by some outside contaminant um and so also just many cases back in this period of time and older just the technologies around collecting that evidence is not as good as it is now especially when you're wanting that dna evidence and so just at that aspect you know we've made improvements in crime cases because we're able to get all the DNA and really keep it secure. And it'll last a long time so that as more advancements happen, uh, maybe we can solve crime cases. And then also, uh, just to show what DNA can do for crime cases, uh, we had mentioned um, in some of these cases when there's DNA involved that it can help. And like here in California in the last few years, there was a whole big news that you saw of, uh, the golden state killer who was captured because of DNA. Yeah, it was a cop. It was a cop. Yeah. And it was all because someone had done a DNA test and had uploaded it to a service. Uh, It's not what, (laughs) for people who are worried, you know, we, we also have an episode. You can go back and we talk about, uh, DNA testing and everything, and like the ethics. They behind. chose to
1: share it. They, they, yeah, you have to elect to share your DNA. And this person elected to share their own DNA. And it turned out they were related. They were a fairly close, a, well, a closer relative of, they had the DNA of the Golden State killer, but they didn't know who, obviously, or, and they didn't have any close relatives of it. And this person uploaded it. They completed the family tree and then they, They confirmed it and then they managed to obtain his DNA and then confirmed him. So it wasn't like the wrong family member got arrested, you know, something. It wasn't anything like that.
0: Um, But so, yeah, that's the power of DNA. And so I think with this DNA project, you're going to see, hopefully, as things continue to advance, they're going to keep trying and, you know, not giving up on past cases, but also helping current cases. So... Yeah, this is an interesting, uh, case. It was an interesting case then, an interesting case now, as you're saying that they've continued to try to find, find more information if possible. So, hey, guys, we want to remind everyone um, that you can keep in touch with us on all of our social media channels, um, whether that is uh, Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. You can do all of that at the Comacast.
1: And we definitely love to interact and hear from all of our listeners. All of this is not possible without you guys.
0: And if you don't mind rating our podcast on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast uh, provider is, just leave a comment. It's greatly appreciated. And thank you for joining us. See you next time.